Thank you, Jordan, uh, for leading us thus far, and what a great song to end our singing and worship of the Lord. Just a reminder, next Sunday uh, we will have a guest speaker here, and uh, his name is Kevin Vigas. He's from Western Australia. We won't hold that against him. And um, he's, his, his ministry is with Friends of Israel, and so no doubt he will have... Um, uh, something to say. Uh, he'll be preaching here on next Sunday, and um, he's a very talented man musically, and uh, so he could very well have something in that regard as well. So don't forget, next Sunday, Kevin Vigas, Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, will be here. Now we're going to open the scriptures to First Timothy. It will continue in our series, and we will pick up at verse eight of chapter three. And we will read through to verse 13. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3 and commencing at verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. May God add a blessing to his word this morning. When first looking at this chapter, I contemplated addressing only the qualifications of elders and then briefly making a mention of the qualifications of deacons mainly because they kind of seem so similar. And I had the idea, well, why repeat everything? But as I looked into the section, I realized, well, I have reconsidered actually, because this is God's word and uh, every section deserves our careful attention. And adding to that theological reason, I also see a very practical reason for my reconsideration. Because the word deacon is all about service or serving in the assembly, serving in the local church. And as you know, or you should know, all believers are called to serve. Whether formally recognized or, or not, we are all to be willing servants. We had a little bit of this yesterday at our men's breakfast. And as I was thinking about that, this reminds me of a story I read where this old farmer had a team of horses. And one horse consistently, faithfully, worked harder and pulled more than any other horse of his six-horse team. And the old farmer often said of his horses when talking to people, they're all willing horses. But pointing to his pride and joy, he would add, this one's willing to work and the rest are willing to let him. 
Sadly, that's often how it can be in the local church. Everybody is willing, but often it's only a few who are willing to serve and the rest are just willing to let them. That is sad when that happens. But we find in Scripture that all Christians are to serve. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to emulate him, we're to follow him. That's what following means. Knowing that Jesus Christ himself came to serve, not to be served. And so because of the meaning of deacon, which the Greek word is diakonos, not that you have to remember that, but it is important. Because of the meaning of this word, which is all about serving, I first want you to all consider very attentively the ministry that we are all called to be involved in. And so what we have first on our PowerPoint up there is all believers in Jesus Christ are servants. And can I add, without exception. But we need to ask, what is a servant? Not in our cultural understanding of the word, because all sorts of images will come up in your, in your mind as you think about that. But I want you to have a look at its biblical context. This is important to understand because when using words to describe what and who we are, what we tend to do is gravitate toward the words or those words that are more user-friendly, people-friendly, more socially acceptable and comfortable kind of descriptive words. We tend to gravitate toward them. For example, we don't mind calling ourselves Christians, right? And so we rightly should. But did you know that that word is only used three times in the New Testament? Twice in the Acts and once in First Peter. But there are many descriptive titles for believers or for Christians. We're called believers, that's another title. We're called children, we're called aliens and strangers, we're called athletes, we're called sheep, ambassadors, and the list could go on and on in its descriptive titles. Each name uniquely describes different aspects of who and what a genuine follower of Jesus Christ is and is to be. But listen to this. Of all the metaphors used to describe who we are in Christ, there is one used more than any other, and it's not pretty. Our Western worldview actually revolts against this title or this description, but can I say it's absolutely critical for our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. It's the title Slave. The Greek word again here is not diakonos, but it's doulos. And often in our English translations, which we all have here today, for the sake of being more politically correct or being more sensitive to the uprising of the 16th, 17th and 18th century slavery kind of thing, in all their wisdom they have often replaced doulos for the word diakonos, and so hence what you do see when it should be slave, you've got servant. This is important. Because servants, even in biblical times, were hired help. And slaves are owned. 
And that makes a big difference, right? And as believers, folks, we are not hired help. We serve Jesus Christ. Why? It is this, because we have been bought with a price. We have that in 1 Corinthians 6.20. We are not our own anymore. We are slaves, can we say, of Jesus Christ. We are being bought and paid for by his precious blood. We have been freed from the slave market of sin, and this allows us to truly glory and make much of Christ and truly cry out freedom, because freedom is ours. And because of that freedom, we are now willing, or should be, slaves of righteousness or slaves of our new master, Jesus Christ. Paul explains the slave-master relationship in Romans 6, 18, 19. Let me read that to you. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members, that is your body, as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. There we are, the sanctification process cropping up again. In other words, every true believer's proper, thankful, obedient, and loving response will be and should be a willingness to serve the Lord our Master. Amen? And serving the Lord, folks, is simply following Jesus' example. Jesus Christ was our ultimate example of servanthood. You know, there's one text in Scripture that never ceases to amaze me, and I'm sure it amazes you as well, and that's Philippians 2, verses 5 and 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant or slave, they kind of got it wrong there. It would have been better to put slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I wonder if we do marvel at this truth that God took on, God took on humanity and came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. We call this the incarnation, a marvelous and amazing truth. You know, God could, if he had so wanted to, chosen for his son to be born in maybe Herod's palace where he could have enjoyed and had the, the best of every world comfort. He could have had been eaten the finest foods and been pampered and waited upon for his every need. He could have. But a cattle shed was his birthplace. And a poor carpenter and his wife were chosen to be his earthly parents. This was the entrance into the world of the eternal Son of God where he grew up in a modest home and he learned the humble trade of a carpenter. No reflection on our carpenters here. Though truly the King of kings and Lord of all, Jesus from eternity past chose to be a servant of his Father among sinful humanity by willingly offering himself, saying, Here am I, send me. Quoted in Isaiah, prophetic utterance from the prophet. 
And so as his disciples in Jesus' day jockeyed for power and position, and you remember the occasions, plural, Jesus told them this, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 6, 26 to 28. And also, when Jesus was telling his disciples, informing them of his betrayal up and coming, of all times, this was when Jesus needed to be served and to be looked after and cared for and encouraged and strengthened. This is what he told his disciples. I am among you as one who serves, Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. What a willing heart. Even at the time of his, his agony, he did that. What a willing heart. But it just didn't stay a willing heart, did it? You see, it was then that this willingness was demonstrated. And how was it demonstrated? It was demonstrated like this. Amongst all that was going on in the minds and the hearts of the believers, of his disciples, he got up from that supper, that last supper, and picking up a basin and a towel and water, he carried them over and continued to do the work of a slave, and he washed the disciples' dirty, smelly feet. Folks, how we all need to be Christian men and women marked by a basin and towel-serving heart. Remember at ACM, Steve remembered, the Karen will remember this, and those who attended. You had the order of the basin and towel. And for some years, actually, I was in charge of that and to make sure it kind of it went in. I had to participate in it myself. And um, it was where you cleaned the toilets and you did this and all those kind of jobs that you always want someone else to do. But it was quite amazing to see those who willingly entered into their allotted task and those who sometimes even boasted on getting out of it. We need a willing heart and to follow Jesus' example. And so when Jesus served his disciples that way, he taught all his followers that to be like Christ is to serve. In John 13, 14 to 17, he states this, If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did you, to you, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who was sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Now, this is not calling us to go through some foot-washing ceremony like some one denomination I know does. It says here, it's an example. But we all know what these texts, we know them so well and we know what they mean, right? The question is, do we do them? Are we first of all willing to get involved in serving that may be uncomfortable, dirty and thankless? Do we put ourselves out to do the servanthood tasks and helping people who most likely will never even be able to pay us back? 
That's the kind of serving, by the way, that genuine Christians will be engaged in. And if you're not, you need to do some evaluation of your own heart. Everyone who personally knows Christ as Lord will be like Christ by willingly serving Christ their master. Most of this kind of serving, by the way, goes unnoticed. But I see it demonstrated here in this church, Sunday by Sunday, and you will too. There are those who clean up. There are those who set up. There are those on the sound here early and music. Our tea and coffee is waiting every Sunday morning. Communion table is set. The tea towels are washed. The toilets are washed. We could go on and on here. Whether it's here, the home, the workplace, every believer's life should be characterized by actively serving Jesus Christ by serving others. There's no exceptions here, by the way. Whether you're higher up in the status of worldly schemes or low down, there's no exceptions. If you're a believer, this is what you'll do. Okay, if you're crippled and old and etc., etc., and that poor Dawn here is legally blind. She can't see the things that you and I see, so she's an exception. She can't do the things, the serving like she once used to. I guarantee she did a powerful lot in her past day. Amen? Even in glory, did you know that? That we will be serving God, but there every believer will be serving Him perfectly. Don't think you're going to go up to heaven and just be fam's arms folded and singing, praise God, hallelujah. You'll be working. You'll be serving perfectly with an absolute pure motive because there will be no sin in heaven, not even in our minds. Our motives will be pure and we will be serving the Lord perfectly over the entire universe. So, as we are saved to serve, this is also a time where we train to reign. Are you doing that? You know, I'm big time for rewards. I'm hanging out for five cities and ten cities. What are you hanging out for? What are you training yourself for? But we must also realize that Christ has gifted some especially to serve. Do you know that? There is a spiritual gift called the gift of helps or service, as we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Romans 12, verse 7. The spiritual gift often, by the way, gets really overlooked because, I believe, of its lackluster appeal. While all Christians must serve in various ways, God expressly gifts some for the service in supportive, practical, and often behind-the-scenes ways. And so those with the gift of service or gift of helps, not only do they work often behind the scenes, they often work without any acknowledgement of the service. And that's okay. I don't mean in this church. They don't want any recognition. And that's okay. Matter of fact, there are many in this church already doing the work of a deacon even though they are not officially recognized and have their name put on the front of the bulletin. There are many here doing the work of a deacon. These people just love to busy themselves, these ones who are specially gifted. 
They love to busy themselves, sacrificially serving, without sharing any of the limelight that others in the assembly, the local church, are called to be in. They're just happy to be busy serving the Lord that way. These people, there are those who are gifted to go beyond and above the call of duty, can I say? But one thing is for sure, the church is a God-honoring body. You know what? Could never function without these Holy Spirit gifted people. We're all saved and called to serve, but some will have the gift of serving over and above. So why does every believer serve with some having a special gift of serving? That's a good question. Simply this. We follow and obey the Lord our Master. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And we are to be like him. That's the answer. I used to work in a forestry gang many years ago where I was in charge of a logging crew. I loved that job. And one of my men was so lazy and he often took sickies. You know what a sickie is due to his overindulgence at the local tavern every night. And my boss, who was over a number of gangs, asked me for ideas how we might fill the vacancy poor Mike often left. My response was, when Mike's not here, there is no vacancy. We don't even notice when he's missing from the team. Folks, it's real sad when the same thing could be said of some believers with regard to the service of the, to the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. A real sad. Real sad if we could say, they haven't left any vacancy. We don't even know that they're missing from the team. That should not be, right? Every Christian should leave a vacancy when they move on or when they're not here. Because we're all willing slaves who love to serve the master. Amen? That's how it should be. That's how it is to be. But as you study further the concept of serving in the New Testament, it becomes apparent that while we are not, while we're all saved to serve the Lord, we learn from this text that there are some in the church who are recognized publicly just like the elders were recognized publicly or officially, if you want to put it that way, for their serving in the local assembly. These are those in the church that the Scriptures describes and calls deacons, or for a female equivalent, even though there wasn't a word for female deacons uh, in in this particular time, we could call them deaconesses. And Paul gives qualifications for this office in our text in verses 8 to 13 that we have read this morning. But in order to understand, before we launch into that, we need to find out from Scripture where this whole thing begins, right? Where this deacon business begins, you know, where this official recognition begins. And to do that, we need to look at the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. Because as the New Testament church developed, these official servants came to be known as deacons or diakonos, servants. 
This has its roots, as we say in this reading. And I'll just read that, follow through with me. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip of Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. So what we see here is the authority of a deacon or the office of a deacon has authority in scripture you see what was happening here in this chapter chapter 6 on this occasion was that the church in Jerusalem had grown considerably there were heaps and visitors in town in Jerusalem at the time owing to the feast of Pentecost having taken place and might I say many many people got saved and they chose to stay on in town so that they might grow in their newfound faith in Christ. But this created some logistical problems where food and lodging was to be shared with one another and we see that happening and recorded in Acts 4.32. But one area that really tested the early church was a service to needy widows. There's always some area that tests the church, right? I love being tested because it kind of proves or affirms to me that something must be on the right track. And so this is a test of the early church. And so these believing ladies, these widows, who were, they were destitute. No support in those days. And so without any means of income... And so what happened was they were served food on a daily, daily basis by this newly planted church. But a problem arose when the Greek-speaking Jews felt that their widows were being neglected in the favor, in the favor of, the, of the native Hebrews. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? Here we have a bit of racial tensions coming into the early church at this time if the Greeks here and the Hebrews here and, and kind of uh, tension was happening amongst these believers horrible thought and so what, the, what they did what they needed was some unbiased administrators to handle the situation this was, this was, this was time consuming work as you can imagine and it was time where the apostles needed to be free in order to give themselves to prayer and to the study of the scriptures and the ministry of the word. So the church directed by the apostles, the church, as they were directed by the apostles, they chose seven wise spirit-filled men to do the job. Now, although the word deacon is not mentioned here in Acts chapter 6, it is generally agreed that these seven men were the model for church deaconship. These men assisted the apostles by serving in practical matters so the apostles could serve in the prayer and in the word. They were officially recognized in verse 6 of this chapter, chapter 6. 
and ordained for the task. And so this recognition of deacons is further established as the church grows and spreads. It's further established. I'll give you one example. In the early church, when we see Paul, he addresses a letter to the Philippian church and he addresses it to the overseers and deacons of that church. So we see that it becomes an established way of church governorship. You see that in Philippians 1.1. And also in our text here we have in 1 Timothy, Paul here highlights the offices of both elders and here of deacons. Now, it's interesting to note that he does not mention deacons in Titus, which Alex is taking us through. And, uh, and this may indicate the fact that the office of deacons is not compulsory not compulsory for every church. Or it may suggest that while the churches are in its fledgling state and just still growing, deacons are maybe not necessary. And deacons should only emerge as a church grows and develops. Because it is then that the elders need help in their ministry details. I remember at NCC when we first started in its beginning stages from preaching to admin. All was handled by just a couple of us leaders, but then it grew. We needed help. We couldn't do it all. It wouldn't be right that we took it on all. So as the church grew, we needed help. And it's at this point, deacons can be recognized, and we chose to do that for some years now in an official capacity. And also, by the way, when we needed help, there were many others who chose not to be recognized, but they stepped up to the plate, and as today, they are still doing the work of deacons, although not officially recognized. You get what I'm meaning here. And so it's here in our text we see that God's requirements for those who who do take up his office, because he has special requirements for them. So we have qualifications are listed for deacons in these verses that we're going to be looking at. Similar to the requirements for elders, we see that the standard is set high. By the way, as we think about this, this trounces the idea that to be an elder you need to be super spiritual, whereas a deacon only needs to be moderately spiritual. It's also wrong to think that to be an elder you have to serve as an apprentice as a deacon first, that is not the case. You may choose to do that way or go that way, but it's not, it's not mandated in Scripture. Our text shows that those officially recognized as deacons must be mature, spiritual men and women who love to serve. And we see that they are to be dignified. NIV has worthy of respect. The word could be tri- rightly translated stately or serious. This doesn't mean to say they're boring and somber. It has the idea of a person being of such a character that, that, that people stand in awe of them. Now that does not go down in Australia, is it? We like to cut those tall poppies down. But that's the idea. In other words, a deacon is not a jerk in contemporary terms. They're not people who are flippant and laugh off everything, especially over serious matters. A deacon earns his or her standing in the assembly and that respect is deserved. 
We also see that they're not double-tongued. NIV again has a good translation. They're sincere. This is more than just prohibiting gossip, by the way, but rather a prohibition of speaking out of both sides of your mouth, as we might know what that term means. In other words, saying one thing to one person and saying another to another person in order to suit everyone and to make you better or come across better. That's very easy to do, by the way. The speech must not be hypocritical. He must be a man of integrity in what he says. He's almost like the elder and not addicted to much wine. This should be for all believers, by the way. Deacons are not to be those who overindulge to the point of becoming intoxicated. That is right out of the question. It's a sin against God. We're to be filled with the Spirit of God, not drunk with wine. And why is it mentioned here? I think you need to think about the historical context. Wine was a common drink in those days. I go to many homes and when I do, I'm always offered a cup of coffee or tea. I even have to restrict my intake of coffee because when I stack up the coffees that are offered to me, if I took all them and the coffees that I drink on my own accord, I would be coffeed out at the end of the day, believe you me. And so back in this time, they were offered... And when they, the deacons made their house visits, out came the vino. Have a glass. And the next house, have a glass. So you can imagine what it would be, so they had to exercise self-control. They're also not to be fond of sordid gain. In other words, not pursuing dishonest gain. In other words, a deacon is not to use his office as a means to make money. Now, this was a real, very real thing because deacons in those days, they were handing the, the finance and distributing money and buying food for widows, etc., etc., whatever. And so the, the potential for embezzlement was great. We have some of our deacons here who handle money. Add the money, count the money, bank the money. Deacon could not be a man who pursued his honest gain. That to hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. We have this in verse 9. Now this is not about hanging on to something mysterious or looking for something secretive and, and cryptic in the word of God like some do. No, this is holding on to and living out the full gospel of Jesus Christ in their life. The mystery of faith is often how Paul described the gospel. It's a mystery because in the Old Testament it was concealed, but in the New Testament it has been revealed. And so what was hidden to the Old Testament saints has now been revealed in the New Testament saints in and through Jesus Christ. So a deacon must be a man, a gospel man a gospel man of conviction where his conscience drives him to obey and walk in the truth of the gospel no matter what. That's the kind of man he's to be. He's to be tested and found beyond reproach. We see this in verse 10. The Greek word for tested means to approve after testing. So it has the idea, you don't put a guy in deaconship and then test him to see if he's going to work out all right. No, he's already got a good track record and so then you approve his deaconship. Test him first and then recognize him. Verse 12, he is a one-woman man. As we saw in the case of elders, 
if he is above reproach, he will be of moral purity. He will not be a flirt. He must be a one-woman man who will have eyes and thoughts for his wife only. He will also be a good manager of his children and household. And as in the case of the elder, the home is the proving ground for the deacon. If he fails there, folks, do not increase his responsibility. He has to be a good manager, not only of his children, by the way, but all that is entailed in the running of a household. At the end of the day, the buck stops with him. Now we come to women deacons. You thought I was going to miss that out, didn't you? Right in the middle of the discussion about deacons, Paul inserts a verse about women. It says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now the question is, does this refer to deacons' wives or to women deacons or deaconesses. This has been debated for ages. It still is. And I'm not going to be 100% dogmatic, but I'm going to give you what I believe the Scriptures teach you. I know there are already others who would hold a different view from me, but that's okay. We're not going to fall out on this. I want you to have a look at the word likewise. You see that in your text? The word likewise strongly suggests this. As for men, so for women. The same way it is used in chapter 3, verse 8, and the same way it is used in chapter 2, verse 9. What it does, it links two different groups of people. And so I believe the likewise in verse 11 also indicates a separate group of people, in this case being the women. Now, you might say, well, why didn't they put the female equivalent for deacon? Because that deacon or diakonos is in the male gender. As I mentioned before, in Paul's day, they did not have a female word or equivalent for deacon. It was diakonos. That was it, period. Man or woman. Both genders. And that's why you come to Romans chapter 16, verse 1. You have a lady there called Phoebe but she also has another tag name. She's called a diakonos, servant. So what I'm saying here is I believe Scripture makes room for women to be recognized by the church as deaconesses if the church wants to. And if the ladies concerned want to, it's not mandatory. Some would suggest that this is for the wives of deacons. Then we need to ask this. Why is there no such qualifications listed for elders' wives, if that is the case? It's not mentioned. Why would he do this for only deacons' wives? So I'll leave that with you. So in favor of the view that Paul is referring to to women deacons, we see their qualifications here are paralleled to the men. And so Paul points, uh, mentions four qualifications. They are, as the men, to be dignified. Okay, they're to be dignified. They're to be worthy of a respect. They're not to be malicious gossips. King James Version has them not to be slanderers. 
In other words, they must control their tongues. As you know, gossip can bring a church to ruin very quickly. Better be temperate. This has the idea, or King James again has the word sober, and it doesn't only, doesn't only refer to uh, over or intoxication, etc., like that, but it more has the idea of being clear and level-headed. In other words, not easily swayed by emotion. Now, you ladies know that you're more emotional, generally speaking, than us men. And so Paul puts a warning in here for the ladies that you're to be clear-headed, clear-headed and you're to be temperate and not to be swayed by emotion, but always relying and looking to the Word of God to make sound judgments on a matter. She is to be faithful in all things. She must be trustworthy, dependable. She must be a woman who can be trusted to follow through and finish the task assigned to her. In our church, I know ladies who have committed themselves to certain duties and tasks and it is always so encouraging knowing that the job is in good hands in the hands of a lady who has proved and is proving and will prove herself faithful and the job will get done. In saying that, we have a few of our ladies who, who do the work and they already serve as deacons even though they are not officially, can we say, recognized. So after listing the qualifications here for those who serve in an official capacity, Paul lists the rewards for deacons. We see this in verse 13 of chapter 3. And he, he makes it clear that there are two rewards for those who faithfully serve as deacons. First of all, they obtain for themselves a high standing. That is... Those who humbly and willingly serve will be respected and honoured by those who serve. That's fairly easy enough to understand. There's a number of people here I respect and honour because of their service to the saints. And even if the church does not honour those who serve this way, God will. In other words, those who serve, recognized or not, God will reward. The second reward is great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. How true it is that productive service breeds confidence and assurance among the people being served. You see, confidence in Christ emboldens and encourages one to be of greater service for him right that's how it works you do something and it goes down well and 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 uh, so often i'll finish preaching here and say and and many of you will come and say oh thank you for that message it really really spoke to me or, or they'll say something like that that encourages me and that kind of tells me hey honic you've got to get up there and preach again Same with serving. I thank the ladies who prepare the communion table. I honour and respect and, and they deserve our honour for those who, who, who serve the coffee and the tea and, and, and do the kitchen duties and, and, and all those, those men and women who, 
who fulfill the tasks on the roster, as it were, willingly and humbly. I honour them. But you know what it does? That should do? Oh, wow. That emboldens you to carry on and do some more. Should never be, okay, I've done my bit and that's it. I'll wait till my next turn comes around. No, 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 no. We're all slaves of a master who should willingly serve. But some can be officially recognized for the service they do. I'll just wrap this up now. I want to read a job description for a deacon. I hope you're all interested in this. I borrowed this from, uh, from the Discipleship Journal. And it's adapted from that. And it reads like this. Servant. Or a job application, I should say. Description for it. Servant. Someone to do often undesirable work for the sake of the King of Kings needs to know the love of Jesus personally and be able to demonstrate it to others, must live daily in personal contact with the greatest servant of all in order to continue training. Work requires being on call 24 hours a day to meet needs of family, friends and even strangers, must be willing to give up his or her rights, pay as often non-existent in this life but great rewards in the next life, no experience necessary. On-the-job training begins today right where you are. My dear people, many of you serve so faithfully, officially recognized or not. And we all need to understand to follow the way of the Master. There will be no job shortages if you are willing to wash dirty feet. Remember, we are all to be willing slaves of a master who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, what a challenging message is in your word even as we read the requirements of one who would serve you. For Father, we're all called to serve. Help us to understand that we have been called to serve. We have been saved to serve. And while we are young and fit and able, Lord, empower our hearts and minds with your spirit so that there will be a willingness, willingness to serve and to demonstrate that service among the saints like we never have before. Well, Father, may we be seen as a church that is a serving church, not only to ourselves, but even may it reach out further beyond into our community, to our neighbours, our friends, our workplace, whoever we come in contact with. Give us hearts that are longing to follow in the footsteps of our Master. So, Father, we pray these things. Take us to our homes in safety, we pray. Watch over us and care for us. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.